The following is a podcast from Livid, a ministry of St. Marcus. For more information or for message notes, go to www.livitmke.org. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. This is God's Word. Uh, This past week, a student asked me, uh, they know I preach on the weekends. Uh, they asked me what I was preaching on this weekend. And I said, the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. And they said, what's that? And uh, I wasn't at all surprised by the what's that question. What's fascinating to me, however, in fact, I, by the way, I would get that, I would think from a lot of adults, too, if I said I was preaching on Jesus' transfiguration. What exactly is that? What's interesting to me is for 2,000 years, the transfiguration account has always been part of the Christian calendar, okay? So many Christians have heard the story of the transfiguration as many times as they have heard the story of Christmas and the story of Easter. And yet, if I asked a lot of Christians, what is the story of Christmas or Easter, a lot of Christians would be able to say, well, it's this, this, and this. If I asked, what's the story of the transfiguration, there'd be a little more hesitation, In fact, even the way Christian churches have handled the the transfiguration, Roman Catholic, Anglican, and Eastern Orthodox churches typically celebrate the transfiguration in August, whereas Protestant churches typically celebrate the transfiguration like we're doing tonight as a bridge between the seasons of Epiphany and Lent. Even that level of sort of disparity suggests to me there's some confusion. In fact, uh, some Christian churches have sensed that confusion They've actually gone to the point of saying, okay, well, people don't seem to see the relevance of the transfiguration account, so let's turn the transfiguration into a story about personal empowerment. So Jesus became uh, more than what he was, and so you too can become like Jesus more than what you are. Not really what the transfiguration is about, but that's, that's people sensing the confusion and graf- graf- grasping at straws. Um, So what really is the transfiguration? Why, if it is such a big deal, uh, and I'm suggesting to you it is, how come when people are in the hospital, nobody runs 
to the story of the Transfiguration. How come when marriages are struggling to work, do people never look for inspiration from the Transfiguration? How come when people struggle to make uh, ends meet financially, are they never finding any comfort in the Transfiguration? Why? <laughs> what, what is the practical value? I don't know anybody who's told me, yes, my life has been really secured and comforted by thoughts of the Transfiguration. So we're going to change a little bit of that tonight, okay? We're going to ask, what exactly is this? And we're also going to ask, what does this mean? Okay? So first of all, what is it, really? Um, let me just walk through the narrative here a little bit. The week prior to the events that we just read about in Matthew 17, uh, Jesus was speaking to his disciples, and he asked them the question, who do you think I am? In other words, he said, a lot of people seem to be confused about this. Some people are saying I'm a prophet. Some people are saying I am the Son of God. Some people are saying I'm sort of a charlatan, uh, and I'm, I'm none of these things, and I'm just duping people. So who do you think that I am? And Peter, who generally kind of runs to the front of the line to speak on behalf, he's a spokesperson, right? Uh, he's, he's never a shortage of boldness or impulsiveness. He runs to the front of the line and says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and that's the right answer. It's the right answer. It's good. All the disciples confirm this. Jesus affirms Peter for saying that. But then he immediately starts going into talking to his disciples about how very soon I'm going to have to suffer in Jerusalem. In fact, part of the reason why Jesus was asking the disciples who they think he was is because he knew that, that there was this period of opposition coming, a period of hostility from enemies of the gospel. It was going to ratchet up in intensity, and he wanted to see how committed, how dedicated are you to this whole discipleship thing. They make a verbal profession uh, before they actually can show it. Uh, but Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and I will rise. But the disciples, he keeps telling them this. In fact, if you read through Mark's gospel, he tells them three chapters in a row. Uh, and it's like it's not sinking in. It's almost like sometimes when we just don't want to hear something, we're in denial. Uh, and sometimes we're in denial because something just sounds so traumatic to us. In other words, you got to, from the disciples' perspective, Jesus is their best friend, he's their mentor, not to mention the fact that he's their Lord and Savior. The idea of him falling apart is more than they can possibly handle, and so they go into a state of we do this today too, right, psychologically. We go into a state of denial over the things that are most traumatic to us sometimes. Jesus, who is a wonderful minister, recognizes that they need some encouragement and bolstering, and so he takes the leaders amongst the disciples, Peter, James, and John, he takes them up onto this mountain to reveal to, something, reveal to them something that will absolutely encourage and affirm their faith. He gets up onto the mountain, he falls to his knees, and he starts praying. And here's what happens. We're told, there he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Now, what exactly that looks like is hard to… It, it's a little incomprehensible. Different artists throughout history have tried to picture this. Raphael uh, one of the Renaissance artists on his, on his deathbed, his last piece of work was this famous painting of the Transfiguration. Uh, and yet none of it obviously can really truly um, do it justice because how do, you, how do you picture the most glorious thing that's ever happened here on earth? It's like saying, how, do you, how would you draw a picture of heaven? It's, in, it's virtually incomprehensible to us. It's hard to put it in earthly terms. And so 
you know, when people say, you know, what is the transfiguration exactly? I'll say, it's the most beautiful thing that ever happened on planet Earth. Okay? Time and space that was the most glorious, most beautiful thing of all time, very clearly, is on this mountain before the disciples. Jesus radiating the fullness of his glory. Um, as they're experiencing this, um, we're told if that's incomprehensible and difficult to express, the next thing's at least a little confusing. Um, what happens? Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Now, all right, that's a little confusing, right? Uh, why Moses? Why Elijah? Here's Raphael's painting. You've got Moses on one side and Elijah on the other side. But work your way through this logically. Remember, Moses and Elijah were arguably two of the most important figures in all of the Old Testament, right? Moses was the great lawgiver. He's the guy who came down Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments. Uh, he was also the great deliverer. He's the one who delivered the Egyptians from slavery back in Egypt and that oppression. Elijah, on the other hand, was the quintessential prophet of the Old Testament. He's the embodiment of, really, in the Jewish mind, everything that a prophet was supposed to be. In fact, uh, the Jews had such a high uh, esteem of him, especially based on a prophecy from Malachi, that they believed Elijah was going to come back to them prior to the end of the world. And so what you have with Moses and Elijah is you have essentially the embodiment of the law and the prophets. You have everything in the Old Testament. Now, a mountain is... A mountain is peaked like this. I'm telling you, everything in the Old Testament is building up to this very pinnacle. Now, let me show you something that's come to my uh, understanding in the past couple of years, which I think is just absolutely fascinating and another indicator of the fact that God, uh, in a sovereign way, governs all of history. Do you remember who the immediate successor to Moses was? The guy named... Joshua, right? He's the one who led the children of Israel after Moses and he leads them into Canaan to fight the enemies and, and take hold of the promised land. Joshua is the successor and Joshua's name in Hebrew literally means Yahshua is a name that means, oh, I'll get to that in a second, the Lord saves. Joshua means the Lord saves. Elijah's successor was a prophet named. Too easy. You nailed it though. Proud of you. Uh, Elisha is a word. It sounds very different in uh, English, Elisha and, and Yash, Joshua. Uh, but in Hebrew, they're very, very similar concepts. In fact, Elisha is the concept of El-Shua, means God saves. Now, there's one other name in Hebrew that's actually very close to them. Uh, it's the name Yeshua, which is almost like a slamming of those two names together. Yeshua is a word that means the Lord God saves. You know who has the name Yeshua in the Bible? Jesus. What do you, is this a coincidence? The Holy Spirit is the greatest writer of all time, and God is sovereign over all things. And you know what? Elijah had an, a, a good successor named Elisha, but he didn't finish the job. And Moses had a good successor named Joshua but he didn't finish the job. There needed to be more. There needed to be an ultimate successor. And even if you're not buying the whole name thing, fine. Logically, the end of their ministries culminates in Jesus. Why? Because Moses was the great lawgiver, but Jesus was the perfect law keeper who dies for all those broken laws in our place. Moses was the great uh, deliverer, 
from slavery and social oppression back in Egypt, but Jesus is the ultimate deliverer because he delivers us from the eternal enemies of sin, Satan, and death. Elijah was a great prophet because he proclaimed truth from God and foretold the coming Messiah, but Jesus is the ultimate prophet because he proclaims the truth about himself. He is the truth and he is the Messiah. Everything in history is crescendoing to the moment on top of this mountain, just like the mountain itself. You see that? Okay. Um, What happens next? It's a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. And Peter, again, speaking on behalf of the group, uh, says, Lord, this is good stuff. Uh, we should, I don't know why you've been holding this back from us so far, but uh, why don't we do a little bit more of this? And so his suggestion is, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters for you, three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. We'll get to Peter in a second uh, and pa- unpack some of that. But before he can, he can really go any further, and fumbling over himself and what he's saying, God interrupts. In fact, the glory cloud of God, which is something that we see in the Old Testament, it leads the children of Israel throughout the wilderness. Remember, it was the pillar of fire at night and the pillar of of, of smoke and cloud by day. And it uh, eventually came and it was there. The Shekinah glory of God came down at the dedication of the temple of the Lord in the Old Testament. It's this special presence of God and it hasn't been seen since this temple dedication. And now... It shows up again on top of this mountain and it envelops Peter, James, and John. And out of this cloud, we hear a voice. It's the voice very clearly from context we gather. It's the voice of the Heavenly Father because he says, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And like every other single person in history who has truly encountered the holiness of God, how the disciples react to this, they break down. They crumble. When you're in the presence of someone or something superlative, you recognize your own flaws. Uh, If you were just in the Bible study, you heard me say this, but when you get into the presence of somebody more beautiful than you, all of a sudden you feel ugly. When you get into the presence of somebody much smarter than you, you feel dumb. What happens when you get into the presence of a God who is holy? You become acutely aware of your lowliness and sin to such a degree that they can't even stand any longer. They're laying there on the ground, but instead of being struck by the wrath of God for their sins, they are struck and touched by the grace of God in the person of Jesus. The next thing we read is, Jesus came and he touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. Jesus goes on to tell them, uh, I don't want you to tell anybody about this. Now, why on earth? Eventually, he wants them to tell people about it. In fact, we read about it in our, our second lesson today. You read it about it at the end of John's gospel. They go and they tell the entire world about this to such a degree that they're willing to die for it. But for the time being, he says, I don't want you to tell anybody. Why? Because the last chapter hasn't been written yet. As glorious as this is, there's something more mysterious and more glorious that I'm about to do when I go down this mountain and go up another mount. And so he finally says, don't tell anyone what you see until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Then announce my glory to the world. Okay. So that's what it is, the transfiguration account. What does it mean? Um, 
finding practical application. And honestly, you could probably find a thousand in here, but I'm going to share with you three tonight of ways that every year when I preach on this, I feel like I take one step closer. It's a mysterious and perplexing account, uh, but you, you're just taking one more step up that mountain to understand the glory that God is teaching you. Let me give you three practical pieces of application that I think will save you a great deal of heartache in life to the degree that you understand them and see them taught here. Number one, the principle, the natural human principle of seeking to tent glory. Um, Peter. Peter has got to be the most well-intentioned fool who has ever walked planet Earth. The guy is constantly writing checks that he can't cash. He's constantly speaking bigger than what he's actually capable of. He's constantly failing at this. And yet, the, the, great, the brilliance behind all of it being recorded for us is, is Peter essentially becomes the embodiment of every natural human impulse in the way that we would naturally react to a situation, even though it's misguided and false, um, but well-intentioned. What does Peter try to do here? What he's literally perceiving is he's seeing a little slice of heaven here on earth. So what does he want to do? He wants to make it last longer. He wants to keep the party going. And yet, the, the idiocy of it all is the fact that he suggests, if I want to keep the glory of God longer, what should I do? I should set up a tent. A tent, by definition, is temporary. Now, here's the problem that you and I have. We were created for glory. Right? We were created, uh, humanity was placed in the Garden of Eden, and we experienced the glory of God in that existence, and yet we've fallen in sin and been banished from the Garden. And now humanity has like this collective non consciousness of we were built for something better, we were built for glory, and yet we don't see it in a fallen world, and so we panic and we try to trap it. And the moment we think we can find something that will actually give us glory, we think that will make me happy. That will be my heaven on earth. And it might be, um, man, it might be my perfect family that we're always good and everything's great and I'll post pictures about it all the time. It might be my, I'm going to build my dream house and everything is going to be perfect and comfortable and glorious. It might be, um, you know, every single device we have, whether it's a phone or a car or a computer, we tailor it in every single way to be as perfectly calibrated to us as we think it should be. It might be pursuing careers that we think, oh yeah, if I can get that, then I'll finally be happy and it'll make me happy all the time. We are like desperate, neurotic little Goldilockses trying to sip a porridge that will be just right and we're not finding it. And the moment we taste something that seems like it might be just right, we try to set up a tent and make it glorious, but it never really lasts. Never really last. The party, you win the Oscar on Sunday night, you better get back in the studio on Tuesday or the world's going to forget about you by next Sunday. The glory that exists here in the temporary tent-like existence of this world is a fleeting glory. So what is God teaching us? God is saying to Peter and he's saying to us, I have this inexplicable, wondrous glory, pleasure beyond imagination that I have in store for you. But I'm not going to cheapen it by trying to squeeze it into 60 or 70 years here on earth. I love you way more than that. I'm going to give you this glory for all eternity. So what does that mean to us? Practical application point number one. Don't invest so much in trying to create heaven on earth and make this life perfect. 
the life that you were built for is a life that is to come. And if you realize that, it will be a tremendous resource to get you through the hard times here. You won't be angry with God. You won't be bitter about the lack of glory that you face right now if you realize that the glory that you really were meant to experience is still to come. Okay? It gives you perspective. It gives you clarity. Uh, uh, you naturally are trying to tent in glory just like Peter. Don't fall for that. Don't fall for the tent when he has a temple in mind for you. Um, secondly, listening to him. Uh, you notice in verse 5, God the Father from the glory cloud, he says, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Listen to him. We're entering into a seat of Lent where Jesus not only does a bunch of remarkable things, but he also says some pretty life-altering things. In fact, if you just isolate a couple of the things that he says, let's just take three things, okay? Within the last 24 hours before his death, uh, on Holy Thursday, he washes his disciples' feet and he says, a new command I give you, love one another. That night, he institutes the Lord's Supper and he says, a new covenant I give to you. It's a covenant of grace. It's not a, 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 a you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. It's not a business agreement like that. The Old Testament covenant with if you are faithful to God, he will be faithful to you. It's just God loves you enough that he's just going to give you his life and he's going to be faithful to you. And finally, on the cross, right before he passes away, Jesus says, it is finished, meaning everything necessary for your salvation has been taken care of. That's just three brief statements. What would happen if everybody in the world actually believed those statements? Okay? If you actually really believed that you have a relationship with God where all your sins are fully paid for, all the righteousness you need uh, is fully gifted to you, it's a covenant of grace, which means you didn't earn it, which means you can't be arrogant about it, you should just be humble uh, and receive it as a gift. And therefore, if God has fully taken care of you, if he's done everything necessary for, for you, for your salvation, for your life here on earth, then you are free to stop worrying so much about yourself and you can pour your energy into other people, you can love people the way you were designed to. What if everybody actually believed those words? We would be a significantly happier, healthier, more contented, more peaceful people. And yet, I still know lots of people who are struggling with being anxious, who are struggling with being, get, getting along with one another, who are struggling to maintain any positivity towards the future. Why? Is it because none of that is available to us? No, all of that is available to us. What's the problem? We're not listening. And you say, well, what are you talking about? I'm listening all the time. I'm here in church, aren't I? I'm reading my Bible. I'm doing devotions. I'm not listening. Let me just make a really slight, subtle point. There might be a little bit of a difference between hearing and listening. Okay? So this is, I know I use a lot of like movie references, but uh, when I was, so when I was a kid, I was only allowed to watch the version on TV because it didn't have any of the dirty language or anything like that, which is good for me. Uh, but there was a movie about basketball street hustlers called White Men Can't Jump. Okay, and the story is, it's Wesley Snipes and Woody Harrelson, and they're the, the, the hustlers, and there's this scene where they're in the, I saw it, I can't remember how old I was on TV, but there's this scene when they're in this car, and they're both listening, they both find out, uh, it, it's kind of like a racial reconciliation thing, but they both find out they're both big fans of Jimi Hendrix. And they take, a, Woody Harrelson puts this tape into his car as they're, they're driving down the road, and they're talking about Jimi Hendrix, and Wesley Snipes makes the case that, uh, He's not really, Woody Harrelson's not really a fan because he hears him, but he's not listening. And Woody Harrelson's like, what are you talking about? I'm listening to the same music that you are. And he says, you're, you're hearing Jimmy because you're, like, you're getting good vibes from him when you hear the music. 
But you're not listening to the message of what he's actually saying. It's not changing the framework of how you think, and therefore it's not changing your life. You're not living out of that. What Wesley Snipes said to Woody Harrelson about Jimi Hendrix, I am saying to you about Jesus Christ. You follow that? A lot of times we're hearing, but we're not entirely listening. A lot of times the words get into our heads, but they don't actually live out of our hearts. If you hear the words, it is finished, and you hear Paul explain that, and he says, there is absolutely no condemnation for those of you who are in Christ Jesus. And you hear Paul at the beginning of Romans, and he says, there is a righteousness that comes by faith apart from observing the law. It's not based on your performance. It's entirely based on his gift to you. If that doesn't in some way, shape, or form sort of reverberate around in your heart and change your mind and change your world and rock your world, you're hearing Jesus, but you're maybe not entirely listening to him yet. You say, all right, well, how do I get to the point of listening and not just hearing? You got to get up on that mountain. You got to go up on that mountain. You got to fall on your knees and you got to ask that the Lord bless you by making what Jesus says more and more real in your heart. Because, Lord, it's in my head, but it's not entirely calming my heart yet. Please move it down from my head to your heart, my, my head to my heart, and I guarantee He will do that. Ask Him to do that, okay? That's point two. Final point here. Um, The season of Lent, it's actually kind of uh, ironic, I suppose, that people are inclined during Lent to, to give something up. And, I, you know, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. Uh, if it's a response to what Jesus did, if it's walking with Jesus to the cross. Um, the, the, the kicker, though, is you've got to make sure that you understand the season of Lent, just like the Christian faith, is not primarily about what we do or what we sacrifice. It's about what Jesus sacrificed for us. His glory and his life. Jesus came in the midst of our fears. Jesus came in the midst of all of our ugliness and all of our failures in order to grab hold of us and say, it's going to be okay. See, that's exactly what he says in verse 7 here. He goes to the disciples at their lowest moment when they're crumbling under the weight of their sinfulness. He goes into the cloud and we're told, Jesus came and touched them and he said, get up. And he said, don't be afraid anymore. Why? To pay for their sins. Jesus would face all the darkness of the wrath of God that existed within that glory cloud. He didn't deserve it, but he would face it all for us. Why? So that we, when we are enveloped by that cloud, only experience the glory that we were intended for. In Luke's version of the gospel, Luke's, actually of the three versions, Luke's version is my favorite because it says in the transfiguration account when, uh, when the, the glory comes down in Jesus, his face and his clothes become like lightning. And the reason I like it, and I mentioned earlier that I use a lot of movie examples, but the reason I like it is because it makes me think of Back to the Future. Back to the Future is the, my wife always rolls her eyes whenever I mention Back to the Future because I overuse the, the analogy, I get it. But uh, the, the, the Back to the Future is the greatest trilogy uh, in, in history. If you don't know the story, if you don't know the story of Back to the Future, first of all, do yourself a favor and go out and learn the story of Back to the Future. But uh, what is the story really? 
The story is about a teenager in 1985 who ends up in a time machine which transports him back to 1955. The problem, however, is once he gets back to 1955, he has a machine that doesn't work. Why? Because it needs plutonium to give it the kick. He needs a nuclear reaction uh, that powers it and makes it work. And back in 1955, as his friend, the scientist, the doc explains, uh, you can't find plutonium wherever. The only thing that can generate the necessary power, the 1.21 gigawatts, to get that machine back to 1985 is a bolt of lightning. But the problem is nobody ever knows when or where a bolt of lightning is going to come down and strike. Except unless you have a revelation. And Marty has this little, little revelation in his pocket. It's written down right in front of him. He has this sheet of paper from 1985 that's about a fundraiser for a clock tower that they're restoring that says, back on this date, a Saturday evening at 10.04 back in 1955, the bolt of lightning comes down and it hits the clock tower. And if they can figure out a way to let that clock tower uh, ignite the sophisticated machine that was the, the DeLorean, the time machine, then that would be the power necessary to transport Marty back home so that he can live happily ever after. So this is the gospel according to Back to the Future. Just like Peter and James and John, you and I were originally intended for a glory much greater than we experience in this lifetime. We were built with the image of God as these sophisticated, beautiful machines but we don't power ourselves. In fact, without any power, prior to the transfiguration, we're just machines without power who have lost the glory of the Lord. We're a shell of ourselves until we get ignited by the glory of God, until the lightning comes down and transforms us. Now you say, where on earth is the lightning going to come down? How do you know when or where? He tells us by revelation. I'll tell you when the lightning comes down. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. When you actually listen to Jesus' words, when you actually believe his promises, when you actually do what he says, his glory ignites your heart and you start to radiate and reflect his glory. Jesus says, don't be afraid. Jesus says, get up. Why? Come and see the glory of what I am about to do for you on Mount Calvary and then go and show the world that same glory as you live on the road to happily ever after in your heavenly home. Let's close with a prayer. Lord Jesus, because you loved us, because you're brilliant, we were built for glory. And we flounder around in this world because we've fallen from glory in our sins. And yet, without giving up on us, you came back and you willfully gave up your glory and took our lowliness and sin so that we who deserve the darkness can be forever glorified in heaven with you. We have never known a love like this. Let us listen to your words. Let us listen to your promises. Let the lightning come down to strike our hearts so that we can tell of your glory and reflect that glory out into the world. Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen.